Hello, listeners. I'm Aaliyah with Below the Radar, a knowledge democracy podcast. Below the Radar is recorded on the territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. On this episode of Below the Radar, our host, Amjo Hall, is joined by Dr. Svetlana Matvienko, a professor of critical media analysis in the School of Communication. Svetlana talks about her experiences living in Ukraine over the past year, documenting a rising militarization and being attentive to the social changes that the war imposes. Am and Svetlana also discuss the asymmetrical cases of misinformation between Ukraine and Russia, as well as how the invasion has merged research interests of media and cyber war. This episode was recorded on February 21st, 2023. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Hello, welcome to Below the Radar. Delighted that you could join us again this week. We have a very special guest with us this week, Svetlana Matvienko, who's previously been a guest on the show. Welcome, Svetlana. Thanks, Em, and thanks very much for inviting me to talk about Ukraine, about the situation, about the war. I'm glad I can share something that I've seen, understood or even not understood about it. Uh, Svetlana, maybe we can begin with you introducing yourself a little bit for our audience members who haven't uh, met you before. Sure. My name is Svetlana Matvienko, and I am assistant professor in the School of Communication at Simon Fraser University. I also work at the Digital Democracies Institute, where I'm an associate director, run different projects there, working groups, many of them have to do with coloniality, decoloniality in the realm of the post-Soviet Union and its sphere of control. Also things about environment, media, how those things intersect, how we can speak about media through the lenses of environmental critique or how we read environments and materials with the help of media critique. Svetlana, you happened to be in Ukraine visiting your parents when the invasion happened last year. And I'm wondering if you can sort of begin by just sharing the context in which you ended up in Ukraine, almost accidentally stumbling into the broader geopolitical context there. As the scope of this accidents and there were several of them that led to my travel to Ukraine, but also to my very long stay there, which wasn't planned like that, where really kind of the scope was kind of so huge that sometimes it really looks like a movie or some kind of novel, etc. Maybe something that I still will write at some point. But anyway, after this very long COVID time when no travel was possible, I obviously had the need to see my parents who are in their 80s and very fragile and were getting terribly ill already and needed care. So I was really waiting and losing tickets, buying and losing those tickets and trying to get out somehow to see them for quite some time, maybe for a year and a half. 
And then finally, finally, I managed to do so in February 2021. That's when I got to Ukraine. And on the first day, when I arrived to my little town, and it's very hard to get there. So it takes you a week of travel from Vancouver, a little less than a week, but still through trains and planes and stops and hotels and conflicting schedules. So as soon as I arrived there, next day, my mother broke her spine. And then suddenly, still shocked by everything of not seeing them for so long, I had to deal with this very complex situation and she needed a very difficult surgery. At that time, I thought it wouldn't be possible. And that's how I entered a very long and exhausting kind of fight with Ukrainian bureaucracy and corruption in the medical sphere, discovering some amazing people on the way, actually, some very talented surgeons. Discovering that such complicated surgeries that probably would have cost some kind of half a million in Canada, the cost of it was about $3,000 in Ukraine, and it could be performed in my little town by people there. So all those things, a kind of, you know, conflicting realities and etc., were themselves quite interesting, and I'm writing about them. But then, because my parents were old and I was working very hard to make my mother able again, and it took about a half a year for her to recover, to start walking again, while I turned into a nurse and was working with her every day, making those steps. Then suddenly, both my father's mother's health started kind of collapsing and surgery after surgery after surgery kind of sucked me in totally and leaving was completely impossible. My health started having problems, etc. And then when it already was the end of 2021, I kind of contemplated a possibility of returning to Canada and was thinking of actually doing it sometime in spring. And then the full-scale invasion happened, which definitely changed it all and made it extremely hard and impossible for me to travel on the one hand. But on the other hand, again, the question of leaving my parents or taking them with me was also kind of impossible to resolve. And that's how I, a war scholar, critical infrastructure scholar, information war scholar, stuck in the midst of something most intense case of study, perhaps that I have ever known or have ever studied in my realm, in my field. And now I could witness it myself from within. Svetlana, I remember being on Zoom calls with you in the days prior to the invasion. We were working on a thing where Maria Ressa was coming into town and just a sense of what is going to happen. It seemed very surreal. And when things did take that turn for the worse, how quickly things happen. I've 
I happened to be in Haifa in 2006 when the Israel-Hezbollah war broke out. So when the rockets landed in Haifa and things uh, deteriorate so quickly. And in the case of your context, uh, when the invasion did happen, it almost didn't seem like it was going to happen right up until the very last minute. I'm wondering, with your armature of cyber war studies and all of these things, and somebody who has the capacity to break down propaganda and all of these kinds of things, how um, the early period of the war, your reading of it now that some time has, has passed? I didn't think the war would uh, erupt in this full-scale intensity. The war began quite before that, obviously, and even though sometimes it's not talked in this way in the West, but the war began in 2014, and you may even find some other beginnings of this war, depending on what you're looking at, whether some infrastructural invasion as building some Crimean bridge, for example, right? So if we take infrastructure as some of the kind of means of uh, imposing certain influence or means of occupation sometimes. So that was an example. And there are other things like this. However, with the consensus among Ukrainians, and I shared, is that the beginning of the war was in 2014. And what was happening in February last year, we call it a full-scale invasion. So I didn't think that this full-scale invasion would happen, although I thought that some kind of intensification of the war or some kind of partial intrusions here and there, especially in the east or maybe in the south, could have happened. That's at least how it seemed to me then. When I speak to people today here in Ukraine, a year ago, like even a little more than a year ago, I heard more of doubts about this uh, full-scale invasion. Today, it's very rare. People almost forgot that they had those doubts. Today, when you hear people, everyone would tell you that they knew. They knew it would happen. And it's interesting to observe that Partly, maybe people just deceive themselves, but partly it's because they, from this distance, they're probably more capable of seeing certain science or seeing things that from now it's clear that they were leading to something huge, terrifying, big, like this full-scale invasion. So in myself, I catch myself here and there on new understandings of certain kind of circumstances. So it's always interesting for me. That's why, you know, when people say like, I knew or I didn't know. So what does this knowledge mean, right? But if I can concretize this knowledge in certain practices or certain behaviors, for me, it comes to things like, how did I prepare myself? Did I do anything in my everyday experience that would express my certainty or knowledge about the approaching war. And myself, I said, people were saying here and there that you need to have 
uh, the emergency backpack, for example, that you need to have things there. So I didn't have that emergency backpack. But I had several online shopping carts where I put things for that emergency backpack and I never made the purchase. And it's also interesting for me, but does that constitute knowledge? What is that? What kind of behavior is that, right? So I had everything there in this virtual shopping carts, but I actually composed my emergency backpack on the first day of the full-scale invasion. In the morning it happened, and during the day, myself and my friend, Sirhi, we went downtown in my little town and started looking for things. Radios, hand lights, all sorts of different meds. And everything was already sold out because people massively bought it in that very morning, in fact. Even gallons of water. You wouldn't be able to buy water, like bottles of water uh, during this day. Right? So, and that's what is interesting that I, I was afraid, but at the same time, I thought if I would start really buying something or, or composing that backpack, it would almost constitute certain paranoia. I was afraid to fall into certain kind of paranoid behavior. I still believed that this war is the war or would be the war against all logics. It would be absolutely a suicidal war for the Russian Federation itself. And knowing its self-preservational instinct, I thought they wouldn't do it. But then it happened. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a kind of air of absolute enmity in terms of the framing of the Russian position that's present. I'll come back to that a little bit later. But I wanted to, you've been writing dispatches, a wonderful, eloquent, personal, and it's an act of witnessing in the moment in this place that you find yourself in. And when I think about being in Vancouver, it's about as far away from conflict as one can get in, in many ways. And the mainstream news media coverage can give you a certain type of framing, which just follows a kind of play by play, but it misses out on the incredible impact on civilians, the casualties of the war, and also the, the psychological effects of the duration as the invasion carries on. And in terms of the participants in the war as well, and I'm wondering if you can speak just a, a little bit to the dispatches that you've been writing as an act of witnessing in this moment? I started those dispatches, although they were not called like that. It was a sort of a diary. The diary that I started before the full-scale invasion, I started it in January, and some of it is not even published on the website. Some of it remained drafts. But the purpose of that writing was observing and documenting the crawling militarization, which bothered me very much at that moment. 
It had to do with my disbelief about the possibility of the full-scale invasion. And I thought then that this militarization that started slowly, but then was accelerating and accelerating through December and January, I saw how it started running and it scared me very much. It scared me in the way that it penetrated all the kind of, you know, started penetrating all the dimensions of everyday life, our experiences of how we we saw things, how we behaved, what we dreamt, what we talked about, how we spent money, how we communicated between themselves, what we saw on the streets, and so on. So suddenly... The science of militarization were everywhere. So you would see people in the uniforms, you would see more military people, some training started here and there. And myself, still before the full-scale invasion, had a very curious incident, I would say, when I was quite interested in how the local defense groups were forming and I wanted to see how they train and what they are about. And I asked my friend who had a relation to those groups to introduce me and to bring me to see the training. And somehow he apparently didn't understand me and told me that we would go and see it. And one morning, we got in the cab, and the cab brought us somewhere behind the town where a man with a bag of weapons was waiting for us. I was kind of surprised by what's happening, and I understood that it wasn't something that I expected or even asked. And then it appeared that I myself was getting a military training by a specialist, a professional uh, soldier. So we went in the fields and he started teaching both of us, my friend and I, how to disassemble and assemble Kalashnikov, how to fight, how to uh, point, how to take this pointing pose, what should be in our backpack, how important it was to not to have scars or to treat scars immediately. And so on and on with this entire set of techniques of what I actually called with this a kind of almost mental militarization, right? So militarization of thinking, of relating to the environment, everything. But it was a very useful lesson. We had like four hours or something there in the fields, and then I came back home. And when I came back home, thinking about that interesting situations that happened, I realized that things started kind of making connections almost behind my will. I didn't mean to be there. And suddenly I am getting that lesson. I didn't want to know this and this, and suddenly now I do. And I really felt like a subject in the sea of things, in the sea of things, of all those military martial assemblages that have been assembling already. 
And that's probably when, and I remember it was February 17th, that's probably when maybe for the first time I thought the war is coming. The big war is coming. And this, you know, again, bringing you back to with this intention to document, to write about this militarization, creation of these connections and relations, these military assemblages. I thought in December, in January, that this militarization and the fact that it's irreversible, that it wouldn't be impossible then later, very difficult to take all these practices out of our everydayness. I thought I had to document how they were creating. And I thought that would be the worst, you know, that Ukrainian people would have to live through in 2022, right? So this whole writing, this witnesses was my resistance to militarism, to militarization. And half a year later, I was going everywhere and asking for weapons. And, you know, that kind of change is a scary change. But this change is happening. And I think this change, which might be something that many people wouldn't take very easily and still kind of hold onto their pacifism, I think we should be very attentive to this change and understand its real meaning that the person like I was ready to go and take the weapon. The person like I actually now asks for more weapon, more help to Ukraine. So this change is happening and this is very much about that perspective. It's not just about something subjective, as I was told before. Ukrainians, I was told, they have no choice. They just have to say this because they are there. Mm -mm. So something really scary has happened. It's going on. And the time for that pacifism as we knew it is over. Maybe we should think about other ways of imagining and creating peace. But the way we had it was delusional. Now it seems to me. With your background as a media theorist, a scholar of cyber war, when you're witnessing an active invasion in your country, how have you sort of read the information war, the propaganda coming from the Russian side, from various places. There's multiple actors in different ways they enter into the public sphere. But also, I guess, domestically on the Ukrainian side, there is a need to maintain a kind of patriotism and a will to resist, which requires a kind of attentiveness to the types of mobilization and communication that does that work. And I'm wondering from your vantage point, uh, how you read into these approaches. And of course, you're not in Kyiv, you were in a different place. And so even access to information uh, can become a challenge, right? When we think about these different levels or vectors of disinformation, one important emphasis I have to make, and it is about 
not using the conjunction and when we say disinformation in Russia and disinformation in Ukraine. These are very asymmetrical actors in this situation. And the meanings of disinformation, even though in some very simple way, we always imagine two sides. No, it's not like this. There is no end between misinformation over there and some sort of, let's say, propaganda or misinformation as it always happens on the other side. Let me begin with Ukraine. So, of course, as you mentioned, and as it always happens in war, there are different strategies and different ways of maintaining the mind, the moods, the spirit of the population, of civilians, and the military. And of course, if you do it, you do it in a way that very often uses quite familiar propagandistic arsenal of things, right? So you do propaganda. You boost the spirit with certain propaganda. You hide certain information for particular reasons, for security reasons, etc. So, and if you hide the information, you also kind of, in a certain way, misinforming. But then you cannot inform population, right? In this situation. So war creates a very particular environment for even thinking of mis- or disinformation. We cannot really apply the word that we take from the so-called peace, right? So or from other times of life and apply it here. It's just not that anymore. And this is one of the major misunderstandings that I constantly deal with because I am often asked to comment about some aspects of, let's say, for example, Ukrainian misinformation, and I recognize it's there. Right? But you need to understand what is happening and, in fact, why it's happening, etc. Even though I recognized the significance of particular kind of cases, episodes of informing population in this or that way, I understood their purpose. But my major dissatisfaction was with the appearance of certain political figures that were just functioning or acting as almost memes, like media memes, and gaining the credit of that popularity, exploiting this very complex and dangerous situation, right? So they were gaining trust and then at the same time getting their own credit for it, right? So there are characters like that, and I've been already quite vocal about them. Alexei Aristovich, who used to be one of not official figures, but still visible presences in the presidential office, is a very vivid example of that. So, you know, it all has to do not only with myths and disinformation, but also with certain say, playing the audience, gaining credit, platformatization of their popularity and whatnot. So it was about very manipulative 
techniques, regimes of communication that they were able to establish using, again, their access to power. So that's that. And there are other things like that, right? So, and this is one situation with Ukraine. But when we speak about the Russian Federation and the disinformation, misinformation, information were there, it has a very different <laughs> type of manipulation and very different purpose. Let's say if we are not told in Ukraine some things, right? So very often it is because there is a danger of knowing or because it can create panic or because just this information should be used in a certain way in silence. But in Russia, of course, we have this, first of all, manipulation of public opinion, right? So channeling and channeling the emotions of anger and frustration and also creating the image of the enemy. And if I name just these things, and they are huge, you could see the difference that we are looking at asymmetrical cases, very much asymmetrical. So, for example, if we take this idea of channeling emotion, channeling anger, many regions of Russia has been extremely exploited, poor. There is a lot of frustration in other regions about the regime, the power, the fact that power is not passed from one president to another, but this kind of whole scene of appropriation and consolidation of power in one hands, kleptocratic clan, and so on, right? So there is a lot of frustration in different classes, in different strata of population. And so this frustration has been used very well by all the stalking heads of Russian propaganda. Sometimes, and in Digital Democracies Institute, many different groups and projects are very much focused on the fact that misinformation or disinformation war, it's very much about affect. It's something beyond the fact, right? It's something beyond a particular kind of statement of, of piece of information formulation. It has other dimensions. And so what was happening there in Russia, on Russian TV specifically, is a very successful channeling of all these frustrations and anger and seeing no future and whatnot by the talking heads of Russian propaganda, Vladimir Solovyov and many other names that you probably heard of. Head of Russia TV, Margarita Simonyan, so popular among progressive circles in America, the top head of Russian propaganda. So these people, they are able, they are very good at speaking affect. And sometimes it really doesn't matter what they say, what matters how they do it, how and when they repeat it what kind of connections they make, and sometimes very random. So it's very difficult to make sense of that disinformation and misinformation. Sometimes the way they connect things kind of looks like a random and crazy poetics. But it's happening 
and it's working. We're able to install in the heads of many smart people in the world, and of course, not so smart people, the idea of Ukrainian Nazis is fascinating to me. In the clips that I've um, seen circulating on social media of the Russian sort of talk shows where one person says something outlandish and full of hyperbole and lies, and then the other two or three people join in and go even further. And so it, it is this like uh, the, the window of um, reality of the analysis and how it, uh, the more outrageous it is, it um, has this sort of traction on social media. And it's it's incredibly troubling to, to watch. Svetlana, I was going to ask you about in terms of how news of the invasion enters into the West. And, you know, broadly speaking, there's a kind of European narrative, but also in the U.S. And so the invasion gets framed in a particular type of way. But I'm wondering in your own reading of it, you know, what is sort of missing from the analysis or what could add more nuance or context into how... um, the context of the invasion is being described? Well, among many things, I could mention at least two, and they are related. So one has been misunderstanding of what the Russian Federation is about. Misunderstanding and overlooking the Russian Federation as a powerful and rogue empire. And now I will explain how this is related to other big misunderstandings that I've been noticing and thinking about a lot. And it has to do with determining or singling out a certain kind of reason or cause of this war. And obviously you hear a lot that the West, it's the West's fault Right, So it's interesting, whenever I speak a taxi driver in whatever country, I always hear from them, like their first response to the fact that I'm Ukrainian and from Ukraine is they tell me that it's the fault of the United States. So I assume that it's extremely spread, uh, right? So I know that it's extremely spread understanding. And in Ukraine, for example, the different idea or understanding is taken as a core, which has to do with this particular imperial colonial relation between Russia and Ukraine. And the way how I see it, I'm not alone in this. There are others who agree with this view that this war is very overdetermined. And there is no way to find one even level at how the events unfold, how the cause of war, how this war unfolds, or what caused it. And this is at least, at least, those two things. One is that that it is an inter-imperial war, and it has to do with this major redistribution of power and control over the world, and it also at the same time caused and unfolds along the lines 
of imperialism and colonialism of the Russian Federation, of all these legacies that were never addressed, but in fact were cherished, cherished as a state ideology, right? And probably it's hard to imagine another (laughs) empire, and I'm not saying that all empires are dead, they're very much alive, but it's hard to imagine another empire that would be so proud of all the evils it did before. And the Russian Federation is one of those that proudly speaks about all its expansion, exploration, and conquest, right? So you wouldn't hear ever this discourse anywhere, but you would definitely hear it kind of there in many different forms, more and less explicit. And so these two things happening at the same time And the relation between them is very complex, inter-imperial and colonial-imperial. And in this inter-imperial war, the reason, like while we are speaking now about the tensions in this aggressive redistribution of power and control, there is also kind of an attempt to, you know, to still reach certain agreements, Right, So everyone who pushed with certain agreements now is very much related to this kind of vector. It's because the capitalist system has to work. And it's because it's extremely comfortable to have one bad empire in the equation. And it's also because, as I heard in one interview, as uh, one European politician told to Ukrainian politician, and I'm sure the same things were told to Russian politician, your corruption, she says, is our economy. And this is because with this kind of, you know, corruption in Russia, but also Ukraine and other kind of states there, were again cherished and supported by those who on the surface in Europe were fighting all this corruption, etc. Right? So this is inter-imperial stuff, right? So they need a bad empire. And it's even good if this empire is also corrupt because it allows to lift even more restrictions. It allows to do even more things, uh, you know, with easier and etc. Right? So you need to have the empire like that. And misunderstanding there was that at some point this empire could grow into this massive force that in the end would threaten everyone by all these nukes and whatnot. That was a huge misunderstanding. But this misunderstanding is a kind of something that I think Europe and the West have to be kind of also come to terms and to become responsible because they fed a lot into, you know, this power and the way how it grew. But at the same time, this really strong imperial kind of, you know, force that has to do precisely with the Ukrainian situation is because Ukraine's location. It's because Russia imagines itself as coming out of Kievan Rus. It's because it drives its all mythology you know, from this land, from this myth, 
from these kind of historical events. It's a kind of so in some vampiric way and parasitic way depends on Ukraine, right? So Ukraine has the most complication relation because of this, because the kind of the very existence of Ukraine in a certain way jeopardizes Russian historical myth. So in a certain way, that's why it doesn't have to exist. And that's why this statement by the Russian president has its real. It's not just a delusional something. It just doesn't have to exist so that Russian myth of identity, history, and everything would be more realistic. And that is real. It's serious. It's scary, right? So because our identity has to be stolen in a certain way, right? So when I think about all this demolition of museums and, and libraries and everything, right? So it's as even I was like just yesterday looking through the statistics of how much of art objects and all different kind of historical objects from museums, etc., were stolen at this moment. Thankfully, there is there is a lot of work on going on on documenting those things. But when I think about it, it almost looks like they're stealing our kind of evidence, evidence of history, cultural heritage, right? So they're taking away those material evidence of our existence. Um, Svetlana, in terms of you know being inside of the the situation of the invasion, the intensity, the firsthand trauma that you experience, also the waiting when when nothing happens, there's this sort of crossing of thresholds between intensity and um, those moments where nothing's happening. And I'm wondering, you know, at some point you're going to return back to Vancouver, which is about as far away as you can get from Ukraine, that, you know, how has this experience changed your own subjectivity or what, um, how have you changed through this experience? This is an important but very difficult question for me even now. So even after I made my first step out, leaving behind my mother, waiting again for something to happen within several days, uh, waiting for her calls about her health and whatnot, thinking of how and why and what means I can use to get back fast. So I'm still where I am now in Germany, I'm still always seeing myself not as a kind of set in a certain place, but open, always open to, a, to the necessity to move back fast. But I also realize it true that very soon I will have to come to Canada. Uh, and it's very difficult for me, truly, to think that. I'm a little bit afraid of encountering the general unawareness of the nuances and specifics of what is happening. And I know it will affect me, but well, that's kind of, you know, uh, I don't have my choice there, but I do think about this. 
And one of the ways that I was able to open myself more to this possibility and accept it is that in the end, I thought there are so many of us from different countries who live there and who have this experience of war. And when I think back to those years when I was uh, in Canada, I wonder why I didn't think about it as an important topic experience to talk through, to see how war fits in the kind of general setup of peace or like some scholars call it so-called peace. With this understanding that we live in this volatile, fragile world is something that I will carry with me from where I come now. And I want to hear more from people who had similar or different war experiences to understand how to use them, not just how to live with them, because that's what, you know, many of us have been kind of trying to understand individually or collectively how to live with those experiences. We know techniques, institutions, and ways of sort of approaching this. But I almost think how to use this, because it's clear to me that we also entering the time of probably more militant time, let's say that, or the time of uh, wars of higher intensity that we thought some years ago would be happening in this entire cyber whatever, right? So there was this understanding that all wars, all future wars would be very much cyber, Right? So even though in our book with Nick Dyer-Witherford, we very much emphasized that cyber war has a kinetic side. But even then, when I was writing that, I could never imagine that this intensity would reach this sort of intensity with thousands of people dying every day. So therefore, I want to kind of focus more and hear more from other people in places like Vancouver or broader Canada, that how to use, what can we squeeze out of that experience rather than just working it through to continue live, right? To continue kind of to deal with trauma. It's one thing. But then how to use this? What did we really learn? This question is still unanswered for me. I'm not sure yet what exactly I learned. So, but that's what I'm trying to think about now, where I am in Germany and where I will be in Canada soon. Mm-hmm. Um, Svetlana, of course, you know, with your background as a media theorist and scholar of cyber war, it's one thing to study a topic and have the materials. It's another thing to be inside of a situation which, you know, you have your theoretical and academic background, um, 
But once you're inside of the situation, you must think in so many different ways of new questions that come up or new areas that you maybe want to research in the future. And I'm wondering, yeah, what are the things that you're perplexed by as a as a researcher and an academic that I think has been under-researched or, or not looked at in a proper way? Uh, one thing that is happening in this regard is um, kind of convergence of two my areas of research. And they have been cyber war research and media and environment. And suddenly, uh, and in media and environment, I worked on the projects on Chernobyl, atomic cultures, science and technology studies around uh, nuclear culture and, and things like that. So, and now what I see is the convergence. It happened almost immediately after the full-scale invasion because the first area occupied in Ukraine was uh, the Chernobyl zone. And then very soon, in the beginning of March, the occupation of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant happened. So it's interesting how the Russian forces moved exactly to those kind of one symbolic center of nuclear power, another actual very powerful industrial center of production of nuclear power. And that's where I also saw how this nexus of cyber and nuclear has been shaping. Of course, one of the ways how we can think of, you know, certain space, certain realm that uh, nuclear opens here in conducting cyber war is the space of deterrence, right? It's the space of deterrence and suddenly <laughs> in the time of kind of high technologies and everything cyber was still return to this old Cold War techniques. And that's why one of the things that I'm trying to kind of theoretically think about and develop as my next possibly a book is this idea of nuclear cyber war that unfolds actually precisely on those two vectors that I described before, inter-imperial and colonial imperial vector. On the inter-imperial vector, that's of course deterrence. And deterrence is a specific but still a type of communication. So that's where redistribution of power happening, but also those powers certain even by threatening each other, but still communicate, exchange certain something, exchange science, <laughs> if you could say. But then there is with this colonial imperial vector where it's just pure terror, right? So where communication is not allowed and suspended forever, nobody communicates there. The terror is produced right here on the territory of Ukraine. When the rockets fly over the Zaporizhia nuclear power stations, right? So two days ago, last time it happened. When in summer, they were constantly, um, the Russian military who uh, occupied the nuclear power stations, they were constantly disconnecting 
the station from power supplies. And the station, in fact, does have a very ruptured connection to electricity because, again, Ukrainian power grid is working uh, very poorly now because it's half distracted. So, and just that, the fact that uh, there is a deficit of electric power, it also threatens the functionality of the station. Of course, it was kind of resolved to a certain extent when on September 11th, the Parisian nuclear power station was put in cold shutdown finally. But then on the territory of both the Chernobyl nuclear power station, which is not a power station anymore, but it's a decommissioning station, basically, we could say, but it still has worked fuel. Just like the Zaporizhia nuclear power station, it still has a lot of worked fuel. So heating those containers can also produce catastrophic events, right? So can also turn uh, a nuclear power station in a nuclear bomb. And the scope, you know, the scope, and even if we think about the Cold War scenario when a nuclear weapon was kind of conceived and used as a means of restraint in this entire practice of deterrence. What's happening now is just the opposite. It works as a means of acceleration. And the change of the speed and the creation of this new kind of phenomenon, nuclear cyber war, is something that really needs theorization and maybe revision of many policies, ideas about so many things that I think that's what I plan to dedicate my future years of research. Yeah. Um, Svetlana, is there anything you'd like to add? All I can add, I want to think about solidarity more. And I want to think about kind of new channels, new ways, new means of solidarity that all of us should think about and ask ourselves, what are the problems with our old solidarities? So much kind of focus either on class, on these, maybe we need more complex ways of seeing each other understanding our differences and similarities and looking at each other with fresh eyes. So I would like to open this call to look for solidarity, new ways of solidarity. Svetlana, I just wanted to thank you so much for joining us on Below the Radar. We all of us here in Vancouver send our love to you and we look forward to seeing you back here and, and uh, being in conversation when you arrive back. And um, best wishes to you and your, your family in the meantime. And uh, thank you for joining us on Below the Radar. Thank you for inviting me. Below the Radar is a Knowledge Democracy podcast created by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Thanks for listening to our conversation with Svetlana Matvienko. 
head to the show notes to read up on some of the resources mentioned in the episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Below the Radar on your podcast listening app of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Below the Radar. Thank you.